turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we'll look at the last verses in that chapter this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. In this section, we will be uh, discussing opposition to ministry, satanic, satanic opposition to ministry, and how to overcome the opposition as we examine the principles um, in chapter 2, verse 17, all the way through chapter 3, verse 13 is what this section is. <clears throat> so we'll read verses 17 through 20, and then we'll open in a word of prayer. Paul writes and says, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage, and we know, Lord, that we will experience satanic opposition in ministry. And Lord, there's so much opposition to doing right. We just pray that you would help us to grab a hold of the principles here that will enable us, Lord, to be steadfast and encouraged as we try to serve our Lord Jesus Christ here on this earth. We pray for your help and guidance this morning in personally taking what we read and applying it. Uh, that our lives individually might be changed and that we might be able to then go on and help other people. We thank you for your love and goodness and your mercy toward us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, in your book, this would be the section, uh, the main heading, uh, Paul's concern for the Thessalonians, and then uh, the additional points that you'll see are uh, my own points as I've studied through this passage. But there's two main things that I want us to grab a hold of in verses 17 through 20 that will make you and I, that will help prepare you and I for overcoming opposition in ministry. And so the first one of those principles that we see, and I've put it into the form of a command, I like to put my uh, outlines in a command style because it makes you and I think more about what the challenge is from the passage. Um, I like this format because it really challenges our will. It makes us think about what we're reading and how to take that and personally apply it. And so you'll see that often uh, in, uh, in our Sunday school lessons. But be aware of Satan's opposition. That's the first thing we need to get a hold of here. Look at verse 17. Paul says, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence. So they had been hindered in some way. Paul and his, and his companions were not able to get back into Thessalonica to check on the new church that had been started there and to see if they were weathering well the various persecutions and temptations that they were enduring. Look down in verse 18. Uh, Paul says, Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again. We tried over and over again, but Satan hindered us. He broke up the road. He set up obstacles. So satanic opposition is a real thing. And uh, I don't know about you, but I oftentimes forget that, just how real that is. And as I thought on this passage and considered the Bible as a whole, uh, I came up with at least four different ways in which Satan will um, oppose you and me. Now, these are not, this is not an all-inclusive list. We could come up with other things. But these are some major ways that you and I will experience satanic opposition. 
Uh, I think I uh, in, uh, went through some of a uh, little extra of this during our move here. Uh, Satan tried to uh, get in my mind and get in my thinking and um, oppose me in various ways when we came here, even though I knew it was and is the will of God for us to be here. And so during that time, uh, as I was writing the book of the commentary in the book of Haggai, that was helpful for me because there's a lot of things that God has to say about discouragement and opposition in the book of Haggai, from which I drew some encouragement. But Satan will hinder you and me, number one, through physical hardship. You know, it might be uh, depleting health, okay? Although we can bring on our own hardships by not taking care of ourselves. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about things that God allows into our lives that Satan encourages and tries to do to us to slow us down that just they're not our fault. They can't be avoided. Some uh, physical uh, situation that arises. You know, maybe your family has a history of something and now it's got a hold of you. Maybe you have experienced an injury. Think about Job. There's a a classic example. Paul was experiencing physical hardships. He couldn't physically make it back to Thessalonica. Think about the physical things that Paul dealt with. The beatings that, of course, Satan was behind those. Those were his minions inflicting those beatings. Uh, Think about the struggle that Paul had. We don't know exactly what that physical ailment was. Possibly something to do with his eyes based on his comments in the book of Galatians where he says you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me if that were possible. We don't know for sure, but whatever it was, it was something that that Satan used to buffet him over and over again, as we read there in 2 Corinthians. Uh, But think of Job. You know, everything's fine one day. The next day, in a a succession of four uh, very difficult reports, he learns he's lost his wealth. He's lost his servants. Probably many of them were his close friends. Uh, To be a servant, especially to a righteous man like Job, didn't mean that you were just a slave with no value. Think about Eleazar, what he was to Abraham, right? And so he probably lost many of his friends when he lost his servants that day. And then he lost his children. Uh, He lost, at the same time, the support of his wife in some ways. We don't want to press on her too hard. We're not sure how far that, that, that went, But Job even said in his complaints, my breath is strange unto my wife, right? And so there was some, he lost those things, he lost support, and he lost his health, right? Satan inflicted him with sore boils, open wounds, uh, oozing sores, uh, so painful that he had to take himself the the scrap of a piece of pot to use to scrape those uh, those wounds, to cleanse them, and, and to try and find some relief and sat down in ashes. So physical hardship, it's real. And Satan will often use that, particularly, to oppose you and me in ministry. This one is a big one. He hinders through discouragement. No, which is, isn't it funny how uh, we are creatures, and I struggle with this a lot, we are creatures of doubt, and we will imagine things in our minds that probably will never come to pass, right? Now, I understand there's plenty of things that, that are likely to happen, And I'm not saying we should just pretend everything is daisies. But think about how many things we come up with in our minds and we will let Satan put into our minds that actually never happen. I think about um, the election four years ago. Uh, We were in North, not four years ago, I'm sorry, uh, eight years ago. We were in North Carolina at the time and um, President Obama got elected. And I I didn't know what was going on. And I, I just went out and I tried to 
purchase, uh, I think I tried to purchase some ammunition to shoot my, my, my pistol at the time. I, 38, a box of 38s probably. I couldn't find anything. It was like now. Everything was gone. You know, and, and I was trying to find something online that had to do with uh, some reloading equipment, and it was gone. You know, and, and the word on the street was, well, you know, the end is here, and we've got to load up. And, and it's just, and nothing really came of that. You know, and, I'm, and I understand there were bad things that happened politically from that, um, that uh, presidency. But the point being that we will imagine a lot of things that actually never come to pass. And the devil will use that in our mind, in our thinking, to discourage us. Think about the rebuilding of the temple. You know, here come these 50,000 some odd Jews back from the land of Babylon. And they have God's blessing. They have his promise. They have the blessing of Cyrus, the authority of Cyrus. And they get back and they immediately begin to experience opposition from the Samaritan people, uh, from the people who lived around them, uh, even troubles from within. And even when they laid the foundation of the temple, does anyone remember what the response of the elderly was when that happened? There was weeping, right? So here you have a group of young, uh, younger Jewish people, maybe middle-aged. Remember, they were in Babylon for 70 years. So you would have had a generation who never saw the old temple. And they knew nothing of the land of Judah. And so here they are. They're back. They're excited. Hey, we've never been here. This is the promised land. God has reinstated us in the land. Praise the Lord. They lay the foundation. They're excited. But then here's the elderly who were probably in their teens when they were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. And they remember the first temple. And they weep. So there could not, you could not, it's the Bible says you could not discern the difference from the weeping and the laughter. All right. And so there's potential discouragement. And, God, and uh, Satan will use that of people around us to bring us uh, into discouragement. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, as we consider examples of Satan using discouragement uh, to hinder us. 1 Corinthians chapter, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Think about the difficulties that Paul went through. He says in verse 8, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia. I think he is referring, think about the troubles that came to him when he was beaten in Philippi. Uh, think about also the pressures he experienced in Derby and Lystra. Uh, and Iconia and all those various places, but he's speaking particularly here of, of his problems in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. So Paul would have, if I'm understanding this correctly, well, wished, hey, maybe it's better to just die. You know, and Jeremiah said that to himself. You know, he's, Jeremiah was... Um, I guess we could say it this way, had some suicidal thoughts. You know, maybe it's better to just die. Lord, take me away. You know, I'm just, I'm done. Think about Elijah. Ooh, a classic example of discouragement. Let's park on that one for just a second. Now, I don't have all the answers of, um, was that 1 Kings 19? I don't have all the answers of 1 Kings 19 and why God said some of the things he said to Elijah. But I want us to consider this. Elijah was God's mouthpiece, Right? Now, what is always God's primary concern for his servants toward a lost world? He's trying to reconcile that lost world, right? I mean, God doesn't hate people. God has a timeline, and he has judgment, and when it's done, it's over. But God is trying to reconcile people. So here's Elijah. He's doing a good job. He's got his faith in God. He's not paying attention to Jezebel. And all of a sudden, he gets a message from Jezebel after slaying 850 prophets of the Lord. 
okay, and having a great battle, all of a sudden, for some reason, because he's human, just like you and me, he goes into a fit of depression, gets scared by a threat from one ungodly woman and takes off. Okay, so he goes all the way from, uh, goes all the way south of Judah, okay, from Beersheba, heads south, travels for 40 days, ends up down by the Mount of Horeb. Okay, now God visits him on Mount Horeb. And he's, he's there, and, I, and I'm not picking on him because, you know what, I'd, I probably would have done no better. But he's having a pity party. Let's just call it what it is. He's depressed. He says, Lord, they have slain thy prophets. They have destroyed thine altars. They have slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, only I, am left. Which was a lie. There were 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal, neither kissed him. And they seek my life to take it away. Now, had Elijah lost his spirit of reconciliation for Israel? I think he had to some degree. Okay? I'm not going to get into a fight about it, but he does not seem in that state to have a spirit of true reconciliation, desiring to see Israel restored. Okay? He's hiding out, he's scared, he's angry, and he's a little bit bitter. And God says, what doest thou here, Elijah? And because of that instance, okay, so the wind passes, the fire passes, then the still small voice, and that's what God was in. God doesn't say, you know what, Elijah, you're right. Everybody's a reprobate. I'm going to kill them all, and I'm going to vindicate you. No, he says, you're, basically, he says, your ministry's done. I want you to go ahead and give the ministry now to Elisha, and I'm going to take Ben-Hadad, and I'm going to kill him, and I'm going to anoint Hazael, anoint Hazael, and I'm going to take the king of uh, Israel, Ahab, and we're going to deal with him, and... We're going to move on. And by the way, there's 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to me nor kissed the image, or not bowed the knee to Baal nor kissed him. And so Elijah's discouragement, okay, whatever, whatever caused it, and I guarantee you Satan was having a heyday with it, he lost his ministry from that event. Now, I don't have all the details, okay, I'm not pretending that's all there was to the story, but I guarantee you it was a large part of it. And so here's the application for you and I, and for Paul here. If we allow ourselves to be discouraged, okay, and we allow Satan to get into our thinking, we allow, God, we allow ourselves to get down in the dumps and allow Satan to hinder us, we could get to the point where we're just so tore up, fed up, that you know what? We lose our heart of reconciliation for others, which then we've lost the heart of Jesus Christ. And that might just put us on the shelf. We might be done at that point for our ministry, in our ministry. Okay? So be very, very careful. Discouragement... Uh, can lead us in some very bad places. We'll all have bad days. Take it to God. Get over it and move on. That's what we just have to let the Lord do. We can't just get over it. The Lord has to work in our heart. We have to submit to that grace and let it heal us. Sometimes we don't want to. Sometimes we're a little bit stubborn and arrogant and we'd rather have a pity party than let his grace heal us. Ever been there? <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, we've all been there. He hinders through manipulation of his pawns. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 through 16. Here's um, the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus. The verse is right above what we're looking at. And their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they please not God and are contrary. They're opposed to all men. Same word that you see in Acts 27, verse 4, where Luke writes and says, We tried to sail, but the winds were contrary to us. So here's the Jews you know what, they're self-righteous, they're living in a self-righteous religion, and they really don't want to see anybody go to heaven except themselves. <laughs> they don't really have a heart for anybody. Paul says they're contrary to everybody. They don't even want us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. 
to fill up their sins always. In other words, they're in their heart of contrariness toward all men, they are just really getting on the bad side of God here. Okay? And so Satan was using those folks to oppose Paul and to manipulate events to keep him from doing the will of God. A classic Old Testament example of this would be Daniel chapter 10. Look at that with me. As we observe how Satan will use his pawns to oppose the Lord and his servants. Daniel chapter 10 verse 13. Uh, We don't have time to read the whole passage and get a feel for the entire context. But there's satanic work going on here. Daniel has had a vision. I believe he has seen a Christophany. I believe the Christophany is in the background, and now he's speaking with an angelic being who is below Christ, okay? I don't believe it's the Christophany one speaking to him in verse 13, but be that as it may, look what the angelic supernatural being of verse 13 says. But the prince, well, we better back up to verse 12. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, Thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. And he's talking about, talking about men there. Okay, this is a satanic event working through people to oppose the overall plan of God and what God is trying to do with the nations. And I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall But lo, Michael, he says, one of the chief princes. So Michael the archangel, one of the chief princes of heaven. uh, God, shall we say, warrior angel. His name means who is as God. That's what his name means. Who was like God. uh, Came to help me. And I remained there with the kings of Persia. No wonder Paul wrote when he said, (laughs) uh, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Now understand behind every political drive, behind every human government, is the powers of darkness. How did Daniel describe human government in chapter 2? You know, we get so wrapped up in human government's going to save us, and we're going to vote like this, and we're going to save the world by our vote. Well, I believe you should vote, but you're never going to save the world by your vote. Human government is a beast and a statue. It's never portrayed as something heavenly or wonderful. It was portrayed as a statue that fails... It was portrayed as a beast that devours, crushes, and destroys. And that's what human government, every human government, including the one we have here, is just waiting to be given the right circumstances and the right avenues and the right people. But Christ's government is always portrayed as liberating, righteous, free, beautiful, perfect, flawless. And so Saint manipulates through his pawns, and I believe that's what he was doing here as Paul experienced this opposition. Uh, Lastly, but like I said, the list could go on, but these are the four we are looking at today. He hinders through temptation. He hinders through temptation. This word hinder here, when Paul says, we would have come unto you once and again, but Satan hindered us. The same word is found in 1 Peter 3, 7, where God writes through Peter and says, um, uh, honor the wife, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Same idea. Same word. Well, what's the context there of that passage in 1 Peter? Well, one of the things that the Lord's telling us there in that passage as husbands, look, you know, don't be bitter 
towards your wife. If you're bitter towards your wife, you're not going to be praying with her. You're not going to be dwelling together in unity and having a close spiritual bond. And if you're bitter and having fights and angry at each other, uh, and you're not praying together, or you, and, and if you're praying together in that state, your prayers are going to be hindered. I'm not going to hear them. The road that they're trying to take to me is being broken up, and there's obstacles being put in place because of your bad attitude. And so Satan can tempt you and me through bitterness. Uh, he can tempt you and me through loneliness. Paul says, but we being taken from you. The word is literally... Um, Aporphanizo, I uh, hear an English word in there, orphan, to orphanize. Uh, if that is a word, I just made it up. But it's orphan. And so Paul felt like one who had been taken from his relatives, like a child being taken from his parents. And that discouraged him, and it was lonely. And Satan will just love to get in there, you know, and just drive a wedge in there and just work that and work on those emotions and on those feelings and let those feelings try to make decisions over them. What the heart or the, what the spirit of God living inside of you knows the Bible answer is. You know, just try to drive that wedge and get you to work on those feelings and make emotional decisions. And man, this just feels right and it just sounds right. And I feel like it, sh- it should be right. And he'll just work on that and work on that and work on that. Pretty soon we've thrown biblical principle right out the door, even though it seems totally contrary to what we ought to do, when it's in reality exactly what we should do. And he'll just work on that and work on that. How many times have you and I come to a situation where we felt like doing something, we decided, no, that's really not what the Bible says. Even though it doesn't feel right, I'm going to do this over here and just go with what the Bible says. And we found out later on down the road that that was totally the right thing to do. Has that ever happened to anybody? Because it's happened to me. But at the time, it did not in any way feel right. And I think there should be some agreement of the Spirit of God with what you're doing, and I'm not negating that. I'm just talking about your flesh feeling like this is the right thing to do. Right? The hallmark adage, my heart is just guiding me. You know, trust your heart, sweetheart, you know. Oh, your heart will never lead you wrong. Oh, your heart will always lead you wrong. Yeah. You know, and uh, now in the spirit of God, well, that's a whole different story. And I believe that there is that, uh, um, uh, that identification of the spirit living inside of us with the word of God, giving you some peace and some comfort. I'm not negating that, but I'm just talking about following your feelings. Dangerous thing to do. And so Satan will, he opposes us. And he opposes us at least through these four different methods. And then the second thing we want to see in this passage is, hey, when you're dealing with opposition in ministry, persevere through the opposition. Put your tough face on. Um, I have no respect for the millennial touchy feeling. I just don't, you know, don't talk to me about that. And I just want to hide and I don't want to think about these troubles. I just want to know. Yeah. It's so oh, puke. You know, I'm so tired of it. Garbage. It's trash. Put your tough face on. Uh, you know, what did Jeremiah get told by the Lord when he was complaining? You know, I would consider uh, poor Jeremiah to have some pretty tough situations. And if there was anybody worthy of some, some sympathy, and I believe God did give him sympathy. I'm not saying that God didn't. But God did also tell him something in chapter 12, verse 5, as Jeremiah was kind of complaining a little bit. He says in, ver- in chapter 2, um, verse th- uh, chapter 12 verse 3 Jeremiah says but thou O Lord knowest me thou hast seen me tried mine heart toward me pull them out like sheep from the slaughter prepare them for the day of slaughter how long shall the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither for the wickedness of them that dwell therein the beasts are consumed and the birds because they said he shall not see our last end 
Lord, why aren't you doing something about all this? The Lord says, If thou hast run with the footmen, and they have wearied thee, how canst thou contend with horses? And if in the land of peace, wherein thou trustest, they wearied thee, how then wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? Jeremiah, worse things are coming, my friend. You need to put your tough face on. If you can't deal with this, you're not going to deal with the things that are coming down the road. And there are times for sympathy, and there are times for... Um, putting your arm around someone and saying, look, I know what you're going through. In fact, I think there's always time for that. But there's also time to encourage strength in the Lord. Not mustering up your own strength. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about faith in God's strength. And not letting yourselves, ourselves be deceived that, hey, God's not really in control or he doesn't care about me or he's dumped me um, or I just can't do this. Well, yeah, you can't do it on your own, but the Lord can bring you through it. How many times did the Lord tell Joshua, and I'm really on point number two, I'm sorry, we'll go back to point number one, but I'm here now, so let's just stay here. Um, persevere when the going gets tough. How many times did God tell Joshua to be strong? Over and over and over again. One example, Joshua chapter one, verse nine. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. The Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Look at Paul's, um, perseverance and his, his um, hey, I'm not going to give up on this as he uh, goes on and on here. Look at this uh, uh, in verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again. But Satan hindered us. We can focus on the Satan hindering us, but look, Paul tried once and again. He didn't give up. And we're about to find out in chapter 3 that he came up with a plan and um, God allowed um, Timothy to get through and to bring back a good report, and to bring some comfort and encouragement to Paul and his friends. So Paul persevered. So persevere by being strong when the going gets tough. And I should have mentioned this one first because it's first on the list, but persevere by keeping things in perspective. What do you mean by that? Well, look at verse 17. We being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart. Hey, I've been separated, you, separated from you physically, but you know what? There is a spiritual bond between us, Thessalonians, in Christ that cannot be done away with. We have to keep things in perspective. Okay? Spiritually, we are together. Spiritually, we are the victors in Christ. We are the conquerors. Okay? And understand that even though we can experience a physical roadblock and physical separation, spiritually in Christ, we have won the battle. Satan may overcome the body. But he cannot overcome the soul who is resting safe in Christ. Okay? Look at Revelation chapter 11. We would consider this to be the worst of situations in our human thinking. Revelation chapter 11. We would think, oh man, you know what? These people died. That's it. God failed them. Satan won. What's going on here? I think sometimes, well, I know I do. We view the loss of our life or the loss of our physical state of well-being as the ultimatum of God's care. You know, if that happens, then obviously God doesn't care about us. Well, that's never true. Because anything can happen to me physically, but you know what? Spiritually, I may always be well in Christ. I'm always authorized to be well in Christ spiritually. And my soul is always safe there. Look at Revelation 11 verse 7. Speaking about the two witnesses, we don't know who they are. That's not the primary concern. The primary concern is their ministry. Look at what they do. And when they shall have finished their testimony, this is during the great tribulation, the two witnesses, 
that God empowers greatly to be a testimony of Christ on the earth in the middle of absolute chaos and uh, wickedness. It says, The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall kill uh, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified, it's Jerusalem. And they of the people and the kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three and a half days, shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. You read on, you find out that it's going to be Christmas time in the kingdom of the beast for three and a half days. They're going to send gifts and they're going to make merry and they're going to sing songs. And this is going to be displayed around the world. How are they going to do that? Not sure. Is it going to be some kind of technology? Don't know. Is it going to be purely satanic power? Not a clue. The point is, everybody's going to see it. All of Satan's kingdom is going to see it. But what happens after three and a half days? See, this is what you and I are destined for as well, no matter what happens to our physical bodies. After three and a half days, it says in verse 11 that the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet. And great fear fell upon them which saw them. We have to keep things in perspective. Okay, I was reading again in uh, Revelation or in Isaiah this morning, chapter twenty-six. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust. I love this verse, uh, verse nineteen. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust, uh, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs. Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. I love that. And there's some implications there about what Isaiah was dealing with right then and there. But man alive, that's not a prophecy about the resurrection. In some form or fashion, I don't know what is. Okay, so that's what you and I are headed for. We have to keep that in perspective. Satan would love to continue opposing us and hindering us by helping us forget that, you know what? My soul is safe in Christ. No matter what happens to this physical body, it will be well. So let's just persevere by keeping things in perspective. And then we'll finish up with the very last point. Persevere by keeping your eyes on the prize. Look at what Paul says in verse 19. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Right? Philippians 3.14. Paul had in perspective what he was shooting for, and that is faithfulness and service to Christ. He didn't want to be embarrassed before the Lord Jesus Christ when he saw him again by not having any rewards or any um, fruit to offer. Now, we're not talking about justifications here as we read this list. And um, I probably don't need to say this, but I've learned that it's always good to visit basic Bible principles no matter what group of people you're in. And so I'm just going to reemphasize, these are not justifications. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's my justification. Nothing less, nothing more. God isn't going to look at me and say, well, I can't let you into heaven because you didn't get any crowns. Can't let you into heaven because you weren't a good witness for me. He's not going to do that. He's going to look at Christ, and I'm going to be in Christ because my faith is there, and that's why he's going to let me into heaven. Uh, I love 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There's a gem located there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 2. Think about the troubles that the church of Corinth had. Now again, we're talking about this idea of being justified solely by our faith in Christ, not by works. Okay? 
There's a little bit of a rabbit trail, so just bear with me. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. I love this gem, speaking of our justification. The Corinthian church was a carnal church, was it not? Had some issues. Some of them very serious. Some of them we'd be like, what in the world's going on here? (laughs) We need action now. Uh, But look at what Paul says to them before he ever addresses any of the wickedness that's going on in the church. He says, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Stop right there. Underline that or highlight it if you're the kind of person who does that in your Bible. If not, just listen carefully. That is, and you don't need the Greek to appreciate this verse. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm going to just give you something of what it's saying in the Greek. It is literally the idea, it's in the perfect tense, and it has a consummative force. And so it has the idea of something that is good for now. It was good when it happened. It's good for now, and it will always be good for the future. So he's saying, look, you're sanctified. It's a done deal. You're made holy in Jesus Christ. Amen. Now let's go over here and talk about your wicked lifestyle because you're not living like it. But he doesn't go say, hey, you know what? You're not sanctified in Christ Jesus because your wicked lifestyle. You're not getting into heaven because your wicked lifestyle. No, he opens the, the epistle by saying, you know what? You're a done deal in Christ. You're sanctified. It's, 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 it's done. It's finished. And before he ever mentions any of their carnal issues... He reassures them of their positional status in Jesus Christ. And so, this list here is not justifications. It is simply talking about rewards or the lack thereof. Paul didn't want to be embarrassed before Jesus Christ. It is coming, and neither should you and I. You know, and you and I should be busy about not only just physically witnessing to our friends and family and co-workers, but supporting the work of the ministry through missions and things. And I believe that that will be remembered before God. And will be counted as fruit toward witnessing and spreading his name. You need both. You need to be a personal witness. I need to be a personal witness. And we need to support those who are trying to be personal witnesses. And we see that in the, those examples in the scriptures. Consider um, these rewards that uh, believers can earn. These crowns. And I'm not going to go through a list of the crowns mentioned in the Bible. I think we can try to uh, differentiate too much between those. If some people do, that's totally fine. I know they got the pastor's crown, they got the crown of life. And maybe that's all true, but sometimes I don't think there's quite the dividing line between those that we pretend there is, but again, I'm not going to argue about it. The point is, those are all rewards. There is a crown of life. There is a crown of righteousness mentioned. There is a crown of glory mentioned. Okay, And those are rewards that we can earn, not so that we can heap them up and say, look how awesome I am, but so that they can be returned back to Jesus Christ as we see the example of the 24 elders in Revelation where they cast their crowns at the feet of Christ, giving him all glory and honor and praising him for who he is. So there are crowns that can be earned. We see an example of this in Daniel chapter 12, to some degree, Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, we see an example of how God considers, um, of how God values those who win others to himself. Speaking of the last days, the end times, the final resurrection, the resurrection of those who will live forever, the resurrection of those who will be damned. He says in verse 2, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. That's the, I believe that's the resurrection we read about in Revelation, those who reigned with Christ a thousand years, and, um, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And I believe that's 
the great white throne where we see death and hell gave up the dead that were in it, and the earth gave up the dead that were in it, sea gave up the dead that were in it, and all stood before God, and they were judged out of the books and the things that were written therein. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. So how will you and I persevere? Well, we've got to keep our eyes on the prize. We've got to remember what's important. You know, we've got to just, by the power of Christ living inside of us, just be tough when we don't feel like being tough. Just let him give us the strength. And uh, keep our eyes on the prize. And don't just wait. I, I was reading a commentary on this passage, I believe, by uh, Mr. Wearsby. And I liked what he said. He said, don't just wait. Work. And uh, his commentary series on Thessalonians is all about... Um, um, waiting and working and waiting for Christ and working at the same time and so he said don't just wait, work and I like that, and that's what we need to be doing keep our eyes on the prize alright, um, that's the first round of, of overcoming opposition in ministry as we continue with the study, we'll look at other principles that will help you and I be faithful in the work that God's called us to do, let's pray Lord we thank you for these, these passages here, I'm grateful Lord that uh, you opened up my heart to them when I came to them about three weeks ago. I just, I didn't see much there that, to talk about. And then, Lord, as I studied it and as you encouraged me, uh, Lord, you helped me to see things uh, that I did not see at first glance. And you helped me apply things. And I appreciate that, Lord. And thank you for your mercy there, your goodness. Pray that you would take your word and use it in the lives of these uh, precious folks here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.